You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here on my right, we've got the one and only Bobby Osinski. Bobby. Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. And next to him, we've got Mr. Scott Gershon. Hey, Mike. And joining us today for another podcast, our guest from last week, well, from the last podcast, uh, Mr. John Nip. Hello, everybody. And finally, over here on my left, we've got the one and only Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. Mm-hmm. Rob Arbiter. Hello, everyone. Am I actually here on my own Skype? You are actually here. Excellent. <laughs> and finally, joining us today, we are honored to have a really special guest. Um, this man has done more things in his life than I will ever do. He has a truly inspirational story, and I uh, can't wait till we visit with him on the second half. Uh, musician, scientist, all-around great guy, Mr. Mike Paul Hughes. Mr. Hughes. Hi. Hi, it's everybody. Good, good to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks a lot. And he's a scientist. Ooh. We have another scientist. So we're going to talk about all kinds of really fun stuff. And the eclipse happened yesterday, so it's kind of appropriate. Did you guys see the eclipse? Anybody see the eclipse? Yes. Oh, how, yeah. How cool oh, yeah. was that? That was, like, really cool. Pretty darn cool. You know? it's But it happens all the time. What's funny is when you talk to people and they're like, this is the first eclipse in, like, 100 years. And you're like... Yes, but a California eclipse was, hey, is it getting darker? No. Is it getting darker now? No. Okay, then you look and you go, okay, I can see the shadow, and then we're like, okay, it's done. Really? Okay. It did get darker, though. Yeah, it did. It was a little bit. It was cool. But eclipses happen every, like, 18 months, right? Every Yes, they do, but they don't happen in the United States, coast to coast, crossing cities. Like Nashville, the entire city of Nashville was in the... Uh, path of totality. That's pretty cool. And that only happened, that was the last time that happened was like 100 years ago, right? That, yeah, that, 99. That last big one. There's another one coming in uh, 2024. That's the next big one. It comes up from Houston, goes across uh, towards the uh, New England. Wow. I'm going to book my hotel now because, quite frankly, have you seen some of the prices that they were charging for some of those hotels? Outrageous. It was pretty crazy. All right. Well, anyhow, um, yeah, we have a great show, and we're going to be talking uh, more fun stuff on the second half. Um, But first, there's a few things I want to talk about. Uh, Number one, I don't know if you guys uh, remember, but uh, not uh, Podcast 188, but Podcast 187, I talked about gatekeepers. And gatekeepers are people who sometimes get between you and – and the client or you and the final product. In the case, for me, I was mixing a, a spot for theatrical. And uh, I mixed it. It was perfect. Sounded great. Then the gatekeeper producer came in and made me lower the music. And I was really bummed. And I was actually kind of angry because it's like it was perfect. And it went too low. And sometimes that's just the way you work. If you work in the industry, sometimes you have something that's perfect. And then somebody else puts their two cents in, and you have to do what they say. Well, as a point of vindication, it got kicked back by the client, the eventual client, because the music was too low. All right. (laughs) So that was perfect. So it came back, and the even best part about it, it came back, and the, the producer who told me to lower it, didn't even come in to the new approval session. He sent other people because... He was too busy, quote, unquote. <laughs> it was great. So every once in a while, great. you get a little win like that. So I just wanted to give a little update on, uh, you know, 
sometimes if you just you do what they say and if you're right you will be right eventually you will be right so that was pretty cool um a couple of things i want to talk about uh, i want to start off with something and, and this is for you bobby um uh, soundcloud got some funding they're not dying they're funded till the end of the year it's in the fourth quarter apparently um and there, as I read on Create Digital Music, there he really put it in a really great, uh, a, a great perspective, saying that SoundCloud is going to be less like YouTube and more like Vimeo, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense from the way they are. My question is, number one, do you see a bright future for SoundCloud? It's so important to a lot of musicians out there, and it's so important to a lot of people that that make a living. How do you feel about SoundCloud? Do you think it's going to survive even with after this new funding? Uh, no, they broke their brand. The problem was the uh, SoundCloud at one point in time was kind of like the YouTube for indie musicians. And now that's no longer the case because in order to try to make money, they went to a consumer business plan, business model. And... Now they're trying to go back again. They've already lost a lot of people, and they're losing more. So I don't see how they turn that around, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be a long, slow death spiral from here on in. Really? Yeah. It's it. it you don't think the the Vimeo whole that whole? Well, that's that's predicated on the fact that you're going to get people pay for the service, and so far, indie musicians have not done that. They haven't, that, which is why they had to go to the consumer model to begin with, because they just couldn't get en enough money from the indie musicians that were using it. So, who did they lose their customers to? Just to YouTube, or where did everybody go? Uh, Dubset, a lot of them. The the ones that left the the soonest were the DJs. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because all of a sudden they were getting takedown notices and all their remixes. Mm -hmm. So they all left. And that was a big source of their growth to begin with. So they left. And now everybody else is freaked out. So you're seeing people. And as a matter of fact, on my blog tomorrow, I have a whole set of instructions on how to download your files from SoundCloud so you don't lose anything. Right. And and that seems to be the case. Everyone is scared to death, so they're basically saying, uh, "I'll find someplace else." So the the holes in the canoe are showing, and as soon as they try to plug one, it seems like another one's going to show up, and it's going to be a slow sink. Is that basically what you're saying? Well, I think so. Yeah. And the other thing that seems to be happening is the fact that the new money that just came in, no one really knows what their plans are. They haven't indicated yet exactly what it is there's lots of speculation but they haven't indicated exactly what their business plan is so we don't know what we do know is one of the founders and ceo was uh unceremoniously let go yeah well actually he's chairman now but uh that's ceremonial see that's you know I wanted to talk to you about it because when i was doing some reading and when you look at soundcloud like soundcloud as an idea is and even as a name is a great service but with all that's wrong with streaming for a lot of musicians, you would think that SoundCloud would be a great place to kind of save a lot of the industry because at one time they had the reach without charging. Why couldn't they go to a model of commission off of sales through SoundCloud? 
you know, to me, that would be a win-win for not only the musicians, but it would be a win-win for SoundCloud because you want to encourage as many people to post music on there and let people sell their music. I mean, streaming is really killed a lot of of revenue for a lot of musicians that are out there. People don't buy off of SoundCloud. That's the big problem. That's why they had to go to a consumer model that was a subscription, try to be like Spotify, which didn't work either. But Spotify's not making any money either, though, right? I mean, they're like, they're just kind of treading water right now. Spotify's making lots of money, lots of revenue. Profit they're not making because they're spending a lot to, it's a, a nuclear arms race to some, some degree. So they're spending lots of money in order to get new people to stay in front of, or new subscribers to stay in front of the game. So that's where the money is. Their, their, their acquisition costs are very high. John, do you use, do you use SoundCloud? I use SoundCloud and Bandcamp at the moment. Um, but from hearing everything about SoundCloud, unfortunately, I'm probably shifting everything to Bandcamp at yep. the moment and then until something else seems more appealing. Um, but like you were saying, you know, all my purchases of my music yeah. have been through Bandcamp, not SoundCloud. So, How viable is Bandcamp? Well, they're not threatening to go away. Uh, they have a better business model in the fact that musicians pay to be on there. SoundCloud made the mistake of not getting people to pay except if you're doing the pro level. All right. And so the majority of their users didn't go to that part. So that that's what really harmed them right from the beginning. I just think if there's a – look, I, I had a really good discussion with a, a mutual friend of all of ours um, about music and about the lack of sales and people not buying music and how hard it is for, for some – some bands that how we're losing a generation of bands a lot of, of older bands oh, because, no hold on hold on one second <laughs> because they're they're not you know the royalties are are nothing off of streaming oh boohoo hold on hold on yeah. but i'm just saying why we go oh boohoo but what happens when they no longer want to make music see they don't have to make music we just lose out on a lot of different types of music and we just lose out on a lot of different types of choices that was happening already even before we went into streaming but streaming pays nothing i mean you look at no it doesn't no you're wrong streaming pays a whole lot okay how many times do you have to listen to a song before you get sick of it it doesn't work that way that's but the problem I, like if you have a new artist coming out, right, and yeah. they want to sell their music. Here's here's the problem. You think about sales and your your worldview gets constricted. And the reason why is we all think of a million. A million is a lot, and it is. But you think a million sales is going to make us X amount of dollars, whether it's on a CD or a piece of vinyl or downloads. Yes, but the whole thing is we're in a new age where a million is nothing. We're talking, it's 50 million before you even begin to get a minor hit. And you're, you get a hit at 100 million and most of them are 500 million and beyond. And, and you think, wow, that's a lot. But there are so many artists who are doing that. So many. That's a big hit these days. And at 100 million, there's some real money to be made. Who? Like, how many 50 million? I, 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 go, I go on Spotify. Oh. I, 50 million, that's, that's a 50 lot. 50 million is nothing. 
50 million is just the start of it. There's plenty of 100, 500, 400 billion. There's lots of billion ones now. Billion, right. A billion streams. Right. And you can make some real money. As a matter of fact, uh, to get a billion streams, that, I mean. But it's international. It's international, yes. Right. Now, are these indies or are these, are these supported by labels? They're all know? labels, of course. I but mean, the, the so Taylor Swift's. So what's different? It's always been that way. No, I understand that. But the difference is, is if you take the, the option of sales away from a whole generation. Like, You've done a, that. The, 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 the horse has left the barn. Right. No, I understand that. I, I, I totally, completely understand that. And I'm not even saying to stop streaming. I'm just saying, why can't a service like a SoundCloud-esque, why, I just don't understand why they that would have been a better way for them to. They can try, but again, you, have to, get, you have to get consumers that want to, want to fall in line with that, and most of them don't know. All right. Well, Bobby, I like talking to you because sometimes I can be Mr. Doom and Gloom when it comes to uh, streaming, and I'm still not convinced, but you always give me a little bit of hope. <laughs> last, okay. Last year, Ed Sheeran made more than $20 million just off of Spotify himself. One, in one year, oh, just off of Spotify. We're not talking about Apple Music. We're not talking about Tencent. We're not talking about Tidal. We're not talking about Google Play. We're not talking about Amazon. Which is Does that get now. filtered down to producers and engineers and things like that? I mean, is well, it? Well, that's no different than it's always been, where, I, you know, you got a record label in between, you got uh, everybody. Because if they're you, making so much money, why are budgets going down? Why are studios closing? Why are they can. people? Because they can, yeah. Because they can. Because that doesn't stop music from being made. You know, it's funny. Uh, I have a friend that is a, a tech for five or six of the biggest studios in town. And every studio does different styles of music. And we were talking one day and he says, yeah, I, I work, I, I do all the tech work at one studio, shall we rename it, nameless. But it, it's the one that everybody uses if you're into hip hop, right? Okay. And he says, you know, I don't even know why I go over there because they only use five or six faders. <laughs> so and, and basically everything comes up in stereo and there's a vocal and that's it. And he says his biggest problem is making sure that everything works. So he'll spend one day just exercising all the controls to make sure they work. <laughs> but the, the, I, my point here is the fact that you got people that are using the studio. Obviously, they can afford it. They're using it more for everything but the studio. Yeah. So – the facility doesn't matter as much as the service that you get around it. So, I mean, you can have any kind of. We, but also, you come the in acoustics here and do it. probably, you know. The, well, the acoustics too, yeah. All right, Bobby, I'm 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 holding on to the hope, yeah. and we'll we'll see what happens. Okay. But uh, I'm still I don't know. I haven't been wrong yet. No, this. you haven't. Although we don't know how right you are, but you haven't been wrong yet. Well, I can show you figures. I can show you numbers All right. that, that will back it up. See, that's why I like having you here, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been the Mike and Bobby podcast. <laughs> and as long as we're talking Mike and Bobby podcast, uh, Bobby, you just came back from a really interesting trip. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I was in Havana last week. Havana, Cuba. That's awesome. Yeah. And there's so much I can say about it, but I think... The one thing that's most appropriate here is to talk about the music. Yeah. The level of musicianship is on another level. Uh, it's 
extremely high and we're talking just going into clubs we're talking about musicians in restaurants we're talking about musicians on the street the one thing there's two things in particular that jump out the one is the fact that yes everyone plays well but they sing like birds every single one of them and most of the groups have at least three people because they do these fantastic three-part harmonies that's part of what they do wow it's the whole song through it's not just you know, questions and answers or, or choruses or whatever. It is the you know, whole way. That's what they do. They sing great. And the other thing is the percussion is pretty fantastic. And we were talking over dinner. I was saying that they're so solid in what they do. It, even claves, we treat percussion here as an afterthought. And that's a main instrument. That's something even someone playing claves. It's a big deal. I watched a guy for 15 minutes thinking... He's going to make a mistake soon, and he never did. And not only that, super solid. Then I listened to another band. I had my back turned, and I'm thinking to myself, is that a drum machine or is that a real guy? Is that a drum machine or is that a real guy? Is that an old drum machine? <laughs> because the, the groove was so good, and it was a real guy. So just from the standpoint of going to hear some fantastic music, it's worth it. But there are other things too, obviously. Now, do you think um... – do you think the musicianship is so on such a high level because being so isolated and maybe not having a lot to do or having a lot of time to learn your craft or, or is it, is it, you know, is it a thing of society? Is it a, a opportunities? It's societal for sure. I can't tell you a, more than that, except I know that musicians are held in very high esteem and much higher than we, we help. Uh, we hold them here. Um, here we tend to really celebrate celebrity more than talent, and there it's the other way around. Really? Yeah, from what I can tell. Anyway. Now I've heard about like um, some of the fusion that they have with hip hop and their Latin beats, and and did you get to experience any of that type of stuff? Any of that? How was it? Is it pretty mainstream? Would we consider mainstream, or was it definitely flavored with their culture and their music and? No, I didn't hear too much that was a hybrid at all. But then again, I didn't experience anything that happened in the evening. I was only there until 8 p.m. So I missed a lot of the cool stuff that was happening in the evening. Uh, and most of it was just, um, it was, uh, I, I don't want to say generic. It was, you know, just Cuban, it's Cuban heritage stuff. Uh, you know, the one thing that does kind of upset me though is you get american tourists that go to these fantastic bands and, and they'll say uh play guantanamero oh, say, yeah, yeah. oh come on no yeah no yeah, yeah. I, I saw it happen twice and like, oh man come on you better tip them really well for uh, <laughs> did you slap them I, that's just so wrong yeah that's that's horrible that would have depressed me right then and there. <laughs> yeah. How about the gear they had? Did they have any uh, modern gear? No, it was all. Um, was it acoustic electric? Or? It, no, uh, most of the stuff was acoustic. If you look at it, you would think uh, it's certainly not top of the line. It didn't matter. It made it sound made it sound great. Lots of uh, very traditional instruments. Uh, traditional in that they look like a stringed instrument. You, wasn't quite a mandolin, not quite a guitar. It was something kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there were many things like that. They're obviously handmade in many cases. So not a lot of guitar players with pedals or 
snarks on the end of well, necks. Again, I didn't see it happening at night. I would assume that there'd be more of that in the evening. And hopefully next time I go back, I'll get a chance to see that. Because I will be going back. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Maybe staying more than just daytime. Uh, yeah, one would hope. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's really that's really kind of cool. Wow, Cuba to me has always seemed like a place that's so inaccessible, but now that it is way more accessible, it's definitely someplace I would love to love to see. Just to experience the culture, and then you always hear about the cars. Uh, okay, yeah, the cars are overblown, and the best way I could put it is. When we see that on television, it's mostly because the American production companies need something that's kind of glamour and glitzy, and that's what they, you know, bright and shiny, and that's what they grab onto. Right. There's not as many as you'd think. There, there's a lot of them, for sure, but not the way you're led to believe that that's all you see. Right. No, it's not like that at all. What kind of cars do they have? Just no Peugeots and new Peugeots as well. And uh, this little Russian boxy car called the Lada, L-A-D-A. <laughs> and the funny thing about that, I, I looked it up online just to see what this was. And they have a lot of them in Europe. And there's a joke, a common joke in Europe. And it says, uh, what is the difference between a golf ball and a Lada? And the reply was, you can drive a, a golf ball 200 yards. <laughs> <laughs> so... <coughs> <laughs> it, it seems like it fits the car well. <laughs> wow that's pretty funny car humor on the audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well great hey uh listen i um i wanted to uh that actually took a little longer on all those than i had planned on it but one thing i wanted to talk about and scott you can chime in on this is um Last time we talked, I was talking about a commercial I mixed where I got some sound design in and it was EQ'd, like gave me no room to for the vocals. It was just, just was not EQ'd the best. And so I basically had to go in there and kill a lot of frequencies that was competing with the dialogue. Um, I did another project and I got, and this was a side project that I was working on. <laughs> And I got some sound design and it was a wash and reverb. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why? Reverb on why? Why? And I know why they did it, because it was some it was some um monster sounds. And you know, you put reverb on monster sounds and it sounds a little, a little more scary. But the problem is, is once you put reverb on your sound design, that really limits what I can do when I'm trying to mix it in. And it just, it, 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 it's just, it's really bad to do. So I can understand using reverb as, you know, getting some tails, but Scott, when you're designing, I mean, obviously, you know, the stuff you work on and with the mixers you work with, um, how do you treat reverb? How, how would you, what would be a good way to tell new sound designers? Well, when I sound design, I don't use reverb to create spatialness. I create specific creatures. I use reverb to create resonation. That's so what I'll do is, perfect. and I always think of everything in multi-channel. Yeah. So I always like. Uh, I just got finished. I can't. Well, I can't see too much. Uh, I'm on a project now where I've got a thousand creatures all coming down the streets and through tunnels and all that stuff. <laughs> and. Um, and not a liquor reverb on any of them. You know, actually, I no. Um, I actually told the mixer 
to not use reverb at all on any of it. Because what happens is I've got such big score happening that it washes everything out. Oh, yeah. So I said the music is going to be the glue that's going to act like reverb. And this way I need definition and spatial cutting. So at that point, um, I would do little tricks. I would – if I have something that where there's a big creature that comes out, I'm going to do what I consider like almost a triangle or a V – where wherever the point source is, let's just say center, I'll do a big center and then I might do a left and right sound, maybe pitch down with a little wash. So it kind of has right. a, like a tree kind of vibe. Yeah. So even though it feels center, it's actually coming out of LCR and it feels bigger. I also do that with music too. I'll do a lead instrument that theoretically when I'm doing multi-channel is center or even a dialogue. Right. And just add a little tail on left and right and it gives it – you can't hear it, but without it, it feels naked. That's that's fantastic. That's some great advice right there. Look at, look at you coming in and laying down some great advice. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah it's not bad. Two days of uh, working on the gig and, you know, I figure something out. <laughs> no, but it's so funny because, yeah, I was just – you know – I, I like it. I like that. The resonance as opposed to spatialness. That to me. I mean, is, reverb in a mix is strange because I've used five second reverbs that sound like about a second and a half. Mm -hmm. It's all about masking. Yeah. If anything, I know there's some reverbs now that after it gets below a threshold, yep. cuts out. And I kind of like that. So really comes out to, <clears throat> or do I reverb to behind us? We're doing 5171 Atmos. It's, it's, you know, I think mixing is all about getting out of the way of other sounds and masking. So sometimes you say something and then you want to get rid of it. And and one of the things I find with composers, because I've been mixing a ton lately, is um, you don't need, it's like a little two-year-old in the background that always wants to be seen, but everybody needs their chance with dialogue and music and sound effects. And it's all about emotion. It's not about piccolos and it's not about anything else. It's about... What do I feel? What's going to translate in any given moment? Right. And some people put down these pads and they like every little nuance of library they could find and they fill it up and thick it out. And then, it, then they go, look, I hear all the music. And I go, good, buy the album. <laughs> but if we're going to do multimedia, there's more, there's more going on here. There's dialogue. Right, right. That's, you know. That's, that's my pet peeve, man, is just – Stay away from the words because that's what the client's going to be listening and, to. And one last thing I'll just say uh, on the sound of X meets music, and it's one of my biggest pet peeves. I can always know the difference between a young composer and a, and, a, and a seasoned composer. The young composer goes, oh, there's a giant creature coming at me. So I'm going to symbolize that creature with trumpets. <laughs> well, he's got to do something else going. And you always know the seasoned guy goes, oh, Big creature, big explosion. I'm going to drop out. Da, da, da. Wow. Do, 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 da, do, do. You know? Yeah. And then they go, no, the young ones go, oh, I got to hit it. Mm. And it's interesting, and it's it's the opposite of what you would think. And that's a battle Scott and I have had on projects. <laughs> <laughs> really? But I've learned sound effects always wins. So no, I mean, it's what's me. on the screen wins. <laughs> right. Which is sound effects. Are you talking about Godzilla? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, the first, that was the first lesson, and that was one – well learned. Uh, one thing I was going to say about reverb too that I used to run into is if you have an idea for a sound and you think that 
like the reverbs are really critical part of the sound. Like let's say you're doing a scary monster and there's, you're using some weird flangey, scary reverb or whatever. Just deliver it on a separate track. Yeah, absolutely. To show the mixer maybe what you were thinking because maybe they'll do something that is similar to it but fix it, fits into the actual mix better. That's a great that's But a great So idea. supply it yeah. separately and let them use it or not and that usually ends better. Yeah. Well, quite frankly, it seems a lot of times with reverbs and, and gimmicky effects like that, it's just a mask for lack of talent on the other side, you know, because, you know, yeah, I see that. And unfortunately, not everybody's a sound designer. Some people are truly just sound editors and not a sound designer. And there's a big difference between that. Mm-hmm. What about you, uh, John? How do you, how do you, how do you deal with reverb and your composing? And I try to use as uh, little as re- reverb as possible nowadays, um, starting out, you know, reverb, 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 but, um, yeah, little little as possible nowadays for everything. Have, have you ever? I'm gonna put you on the spot. Have you ever like sent something to stage to get mixed and get a note back from the composer? I mean, from the mixer. Oh yeah, like, yeah. I'll tell the truth. Definitely. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, an honest composer. <laughs> for sure. You know, the interesting thing is, for a long time, <laughs> reverb was very much um, passe in modern mixing. Yeah. Music mixing. But it's coming back now big time. You yeah. hear, if you listen to the top 40, you'll find everything is kind of washed in reverb yeah. more so than ever. There's a big wash. Well, part know? of it is a long time ago, reverb sounded great because it was these big, complex, you know, actual reverb chambers and plates and stuff. And then everybody started using cheap digital reverb that actually didn't sound very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now cheap digital reverb is starting to sound really good again. So I think it might actually... That might have something to do with but why. I'll say with music, one of the things that I'm finding, because I keep getting music tracks from composers, and everybody's doing it in the box, and it's flat. It's yeah, lifeless, yeah. and it's flat. So it's even though it sort of sounds as good as they can find, right. when you compare it to a live recording session, yeah. it's so what I use reverb for is create depth of field. So if I've got choirs, and I've got strings, and I want to push them back, I want them to make them feel like they're 50 to 100 feet back. So then not all the instruments are going to be washed the same way. So now it gives me depth of field. So I can have, you know, I've even done stuff where I've had strings and string runs rolling where I go from reverb to no reverb. Yeah. And it's right at the audience. So it feels like it's coming at you. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool effect. Yeah, I mean that that's a great effect especially when it feels like it's going to to like nothing like this void, you know, of of nothingness. But you know there's a great reverb out. I've always loved say, you know the Phoenix reverb's wonderful, but I will say there's a reverb I've been playing with that's been blowing my mind a little bit and that's Fab Filter. So what they've done is reverb time is based on frequency. And it's a point type frequency. So now you can take any point any frequency point, and change the reverb time of that point. Mm-hmm. So now what I've been able to get, which I've never gotten out of reverb, is gun reports. We have You can keep it out of the way of the report. Absolutely. Yeah. So now all of a sudden, I'm doing these things that look strange, these spikes. And it's not like, you know, Lexicon was always like a crossover. Right, right. You know, now it's, no, I'm going after very specific points. But what also... You start of doing, instead of EQing the reverb, you could sit there and say, ah, 400 hertz. It started bunching up there. 
I'm going to make that really short, just that, that little dip there, but be able to do a little shimmer on the high end and roll the low end because I've got something really interesting Wait, going. Wait, this is FabFilter? FabFilter has a, a reverb. I think it's called... It's FabFilter R, isn't it? FabFilter R, yeah. Oh, my And goodness. I looked and I just... A friend of mine turned me on to it and it does things that nothing else does. I mean... You know, adaptive verb is really nice because it gets rid of peaks. Yeah, I just and, and I just got that. Adaptive and, verb is great, like for, for things that you just go. I don't want to hear percussion ringing and sizzling. I just want to get like wonderful body. But the uh, yeah, that's why I was going to say one thing that's interesting is as a sound designer, we're much into shaping sounds with plugins. I find most mixers don't have the time uh, to spend playing around with those kinds of tricks. It's always, a, I got to get some reverb here, put an EQ, put a compressor, contain it. I got to get a mix going. And that's why it's fun to deliver tracks that have that stuff embedded into it. But like, I do agree with Rob, if you're doing something weird, just put on a separate track. It's too easy. It's only 200 bucks. It's great. The Fab Filter? Yes. Oh my gosh. <coughs> Has anybody tried the Seventh Heaven yet, the Bercasti software version? No, I've always wanted to try Bercasti. Yeah, the, well, the, there's, it's only a couple <coughs> hundred bucks. It's, How was the Slate version of Bercasti? I don't know. I, I got to Slate, but I haven't tried it. Is that, is the Bercasti software version supposedly the exact same algorithm? Supposedly, but. Hmm. Expanded. There's a lot more that you can do with it. Interesting. It looks fairly easy as well. Seventh Heaven, it's called. Is it 199? Because I think so, yeah. Because <laughs> Fal Filter, Filter Pro R, is, that's amazing. That's incredible. Like, right when that, like, reverbs are coming back. I mean, I, yeah. I'm totally into reverb. You know what I did the other day? And this is so wrong. And what I'm about to tell you, don't do this. But I, but I did this. I was working on a spot. And it seemed really just – have you ever mixed something where it just seems all disjointed? Like you can't glue it together. Like for some reason, everything is like in a in a cardboard lane and it's just, just like your sound effects and nothing is gelling. And, and I was – I didn't know what to do. So I ended up putting on my effects bus just a little bit of reverb on it. Just let it let it sing just a little bit, a little small hall that sang just a little, and right on the bus, not even as an as an aux, right on the on mm -hmm. the effects bus, and by golly, it just was enough to kind of just put it all in the same space, yeah. and some and you really couldn't hear the reverb. I mean, I could, you know, because I knew it was on there, but I didn't say anything, and it just it just it worked, and it's like. Reverbs are really useful, you know. I mean, even if you just do a little subtle thing where you just get enough that it's singing and they're in the same space, it'll just it'll glue it together. And I I wouldn't recommend always putting a reverb on your effects bus on the whole thing because you have a lot of other stuff happening. But sometimes when you just need a little something to kind of snap it all together, putting them all in the same space. See, I, I think you can't look at it like a reverb. You can't think of reverb. You have to think more of environment. Yeah. yeah. This is my environmental control. Yeah. But it's fun. I'm, years ago, Andrew Sheps, Rob, and I had a conversation about reverb. I think it was at a dinner. <laughs> And most Wait, of our, most yeah, of our I know where this is going. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what? What a setup right there. <laughs> That's the best setup ever. <laughs> but you know what was interesting? I think Andrew and I, 
He's like, well, I, I get rid of all the low end and I just, you know, I push the high end, blah, blah, blah. And, I'm, and we were talking, I said, oh, I get rid of the high end and push the low end. And we were talking about how we use the same technologies, totally different for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he's trying to get that tight base and I'm trying to get a rolling sub. You know, because I've always, I've been studying orchestral stuff in theater. Why does timpani have such low end without a sub? And I can't get that low end. And I was spending years trying to understand why when they go, when they hit it, you hear this low end because it's the simplicity of the waveform and the speaker doesn't have to work so hard. Mm-hmm. So if I take a low end sound when we're doing creatures, I get a, and Weaver gives you a nice little sign. It smooths it out. It takes the harsh transients out. And, mm. and it's just great. I mean, that's what timpani does. So when I open the Audio Nowcast store, the first T-shirt is, I love reverb. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. Well, hey, listen, we're going to take a break. And uh, Mike, what do you think about our conversations we have here on the... Uh... Well, I love it. I, I wanted to chime in on you know how to mix reverbs by rolling off the high frequencies on the low, on the low reverbs and... Well, you're going to get a chance when we come back from the break. So, hey, listen, uh, we're going to take a break right now. And then when we come back, we're going to visit with Mike Paul Hughes. He has a great story. And we're going to continue the conversation on a few other things. So we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And before the break, we were talking reverb, and we were talking about the most awesome dinner ever where Scott, Rob, and Andrew got together and talked about reverb. Oh, and you know, a crowd formed. Uh, yeah, a crowd formed. <laughs> and it was, what, four hours at oh, least? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, hey, uh, we're going to visit right now with uh, Mike Paul Hughes. But before we do that, I wanted to bring something up really quick that um, I kind of ran out of time in the first half. But um, I went to a bookstore. I haven't been to a bookstore in months and months. Where did you find a bookstore? I went to Barnes & Noble, actually pretty wow. close to my house. And I went to the magazine um, area. And magazines were really thin. They still had some magazines, but they were really thin. And I kind of started reminiscing about how important printed publications were to my um, my career. I literally owe my career to Guitar Center, to Keyboard Magazine, and Electronic Musician. And if anybody remembers, EQ Magazine also. I, was, I subscribed to those. I learned all my stuff from magazines because that's the that's where you got your most relevant information the fastest and i looked at the subscriptions and i subscribed and that whole thing anyhow i went in there and i was kind of reminiscing about magazines and things like that and a lot of people think about digital and you you see these articles about digital killing publishing and digital killing all this stuff and i that's the one area where i kind of flip i think Digital has done amazing things. And, you know, people right now, I've read some threads and I did a little bit of research about paying subscriptions and things like that and how people are reluctant to pay for for subscriptions. But, you know, 
Subscribing to Keyboard Magazine back in the day was about just as much as subscribing to a really good, you know, learning series that you can do. And I just want to encourage people to support, like, that's the modern day equivalent of the magazines is subscription sites, you know, buying training and things like that, stuff like what Bobby does. And, and I'm not doing this for a Bobby Osinski commercial, but seriously, something you know, along the lines which what you're starting up and doing, that's it's a great investment. And I just, you know, if you're sitting there thinking that you're um, you're being nickel and dime to death with all these different subscriptions, you know what? Back in the day, it was the same thing. You were buying this magazine and that magazine and doing this and doing that. So I just want to encourage people to take advantage of that. Don't expect everything for free because you kind of get what you pay for. And there's a lot of really good quality stuff if you just pay a couple bucks a month or pay a couple bucks a year. So anyway, Bobby, I'm, I'm giving you that plug for free. <laughs> All right. Having said that, um, I want to transfer Mike. Uh, first of all, if you go to Mike Paul Hughes's uh, Facebook page, and all you got to do is just read the little intro about him. When you see things that says like works at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and music producer and guest speaker and former manager and musician and composer and and. You have such a great story, and it's so good, and you've done so much. and And I'm just going to shut up right now for a second. <laughs> I want I want you to take us back because you were a, a bass player, you're a musician, and then you right. made it from a musician bass player all the way to working for NASA. I mean, how did that happen? Well, uh, yeah, I was a bass player in, uh, in 1985. And uh, I was 22 years old. I was playing for a Philadelphia rock band called Third Uncle. And we were an original band. And, you know, we played the played the clubs. You know, we had a record out. We had airplay. You know, we had some gigs and girls. And, you know, things were going pretty well. We had gone from, you know, playing the dive bars on South Street up to, you know, playing the Empire Rock Club and the Chestnut Cabaret, you know. So uh, then the band broke up. And I got fired from my job. I was working in a print shop, talking about printing. <laughs> uh, my girlfriend dumped me. Oh my gosh. And my car died. <laughs> That's like a country song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it all happened in a period of uh, about three weeks. It's like around October of 1985. So I spent the, the rest of that fall just sitting on the couch, pretty dreary thinking about what my life was going to be, spending my little savings that I had. And out of desperation, I got another job right before Christmas. Um, took a cut in pay. Um, hated that job day one. Same old crap, you know, same old smell of ink, same old people. Uh, and I was sort of drifting sideways in life. And then uh, January 28th, 1986, about a month after I started that job, uh, the Challenger exploded. And it set me on a new path. Uh, I felt like, uh, you know, I wanted to enlist wow. uh, to help NASA. Uh, so I uh, went into a self-induced poverty to save enough money uh, to get into Penn State Aerospace Engineering. And I studied, I used textbooks from my nephew that had uh, found in the trash in Philadelphia math and physics books. And, uh, I, you know, I really, 
um, scrimped and saved and did the lived on a dollar a day. And I proved that you can live on a dollar a day in America. Uh, but I saved $4,000 in six months, paid tuition, uh, made it into aerospace engineering, and then faced my biggest challenge, uh, which was calculus. Uh, do you guys, <laughs> anybody here? You took calculus, yeah. Rob. Right? Yeah, I like calculus. So not maybe uh, one, two, three percent of the population takes it and does well in it. And I was not from that part of the population. <laughs> uh, my parents didn't go to college. My mom didn't even go to high school. Uh, eight older brothers and sisters. Wow. Uh, no college. Aunts and uncles, no college. I was the first one in my family line, uh, going back to the dirt, mm -hmm. uh, to take calculus. Uh, so I took it pretty seriously. And I, I uh, my first day in calculus... Show up in class um, early. Uh, I shaved. I washed my clothes, which I hadn't done all summer. Sat in the front row, and the professor comes in, and he says, uh, "We're just going to do a little bit of review." And he goes to the board and just starts slaying the board with equations, stuff that I had never heard, a new language like. Delta X and Delta Y and <laughs> sines and cosines and secants and tangents. And I was uh, not a great student in high school, so I was uh, sort of going into a panic attack as I took my, my notes and, uh, you know, I couldn't make the symbols. And he just kept going on and on and on. And then slam, it's another board. And he's up at it again. And I just shrunk. Uh, at the end of the class, which ended just as fast as it began, he says, uh, anybody want to come up and talk to me? Just, I'll be here for a few minutes. And so uh, I'm too slow to rise. I'm, I'm in, this, in this mode. And two other students get up before me, and they both, uh, now they're in line, and I'm, I'm, I rise, and I'm third in line. And first one says to the professor, professor, I had this in high school and I aced it. Can I just take the final exam and get out of here? <laughs> and the second one says exactly the same thing. Uh, and now it's my turn. And uh, I look at this man. He's this tall professor of mathematics. And I said, uh, Professor, I don't know what you just said. I haven't been in a classroom in five years. But now... I am here to learn. I will do whatever you say, whatever it takes to be an aerospace engineer. And he looks down at me and he, he smirks a little bit and he makes this little note and he hands it to me and it's his office hours. He says, we'll see what we can do. So the next day I show up outside his locked office, I got my papers sprawled into the hallway the notes I had taken the day before, uh, trying to rework it, and he comes and he unlocks the door, and then uh, that was the epiphany when I when I when I got inside there, because uh, he was willing to help me, and uh, I was willing to work, uh, and I put in 12, uh, 14, 16 hours a day. I I did the primary text, the backup text. The optional text. I made up problems. I, 
Uh, I was learning algebra, trigonometry, and calculus all at the same time. Wow. wow. Um, and you wouldn't believe it, but I aced calculus. Wow. And I aced Calc 2 and Calc 3 and differential equations. And I aced physics and electromagnetism and thermodynamics. And I aced them all, right? Uh, I practiced it like a bass player running scales. I did the problems twice. Um, the first time I would do it scratch and the second time I would do it neat to turn in. I made sure all my work was on time and looked like art. Uh, one of the professors even said to me one time, You're, you, you, you did this? This looks like art. <laughs> because I made my, I, I had been so frustrated not being able to make the symbols that I now uh, turned my symbols into art. And that carried me. And by the time we got to quantum mechanics, there were, there were four of us left. There had been about 30 two years before, and now there's four of us. Wow. And uh, I used that too. So I went on to graduate magna cum laude, second in my class, uh, with honors and distinction, and to go on to be selected by uh, GE Astrospace, uh, their uh, guidance, navigation, and control analysis group, uh, to do uh, spacecraft pointing control. And uh, that was, uh, that's kind of how I did it. And then from there, it's been just, you know, career building, one job after the other. So a lot of hard work. Well, tell, tell everybody what you're doing now. So I work for NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I don't represent NASA, by the way. I'm, I'm here on my own, my own time. Um, I'm working on uh, two projects. One of them is called Starshade, which is to block the light of our nearest neighbor stars to look for planets orbiting those stars. Huh. And the sensitivity of this technique is enough that we can detect signatures of carbon dioxide, methane, oxygen, and water vapor in the atmospheres of those planets. And the proper combination of them would indicate life. I think it's it's a, it's a fait accompli that we're going to discover these elements and conclude life within the next 20 or 30 years. Wow. So I'm working on a mission that uh, will, if it's uh, selected, it's got to go through the whole uh, NASA process of selection in the late 2020s will be giving us this news. Well, what's the other project? Uh, the other project is Europa Clipper, uh, which is a mission to go to the second moon of Jupiter to detect if there's a liquid water ocean underneath the, the ice. Uh, Voyagers went by and took photographs and right. showed that the surface of Europa was scarred and it looked like some of the ice flows in Antarctica. Uh, then uh, Galileo went and took even more pictures, and now the spacecraft Juno is there. Uh, this will be a mission to uh, do multiple flybys of Europa and, and look for signature of that ocean. And what are you doing exactly in, in that project? What's your job? Um, Mike, I don't want to go into much of like, you know, what I'm doing particularly, but 
uh, let me say it in general terms that uh, um, it's a flight project. So it has to go through um, phases. Phase A is conceptual design. Phase B is preliminary design. Phase C, detailed design. D is uh, integration test. E is launch. And we're right now in phase B. Uh, so we're uh, preliminary design. We're trying to get all the requirements right. We're trying to line up how we're going to test the system so that when it reaches the launch pad, it has been through, you know, all the simulation testing, all the uh, hardware testing, all the verification has been completed. Do you know when it's going to launch yet? Uh, yeah, 2022. Wow. Now, I, I should say how we met, which is kind of interesting. So <laughs> Mike sent me a, a Facebook message saying he was going to come in town. I didn't know him. He was going to come in town. And he would like to have lunch. And I'm always cautious about that because you just never know, you know, if weirdos. Yeah, if somebody's <laughs> gonna be kind of weird or not. Could be a Dateline NBC moment. <laughs> the good thing about Facebook is that you can actually go look at their page and, and check them out a little bit. So I went to Mike's page, right. and there's a picture of him, and he's in the, the cockpit of the space shuttle simulator, I guess, right? In Houston. Yeah. And I looked at that, I thought, okay, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, and we had a great so time. I, I got to say this. Now, here's the reason that I called Bobby. I cold called him from, or sent him an email, a uh, Facebook message from Colorado. I was living in Colorado working on the Orion project for Lockheed Martin. And I was producing music in my basement, and I got some equipment, 2007, 2008, and I got Bobby's book. Mixing Engineer's Handbook, second edition. And immediately my music was like listenable. And all the people around <laughs> me were like, wow, you did that? That's like really good. And I'm like, well, I know what I did. I read Bobby's book, right? So that I came out to really, you know, fanboy stuff and take a picture <laughs> with them and uh, hang out with Bobby Ozinski because that book really changed my life in a way because it opened up uh, production to me that I... I didn't have in my bailiwick before. Hmm. You know, which which so amazing about your story. First of all, it's so inspirational. Seriously, like the last ten minutes that we've had on this pod, that was so inspirational. I, I can't tell you, you how amazing that is. Um, and in some ways, it parallels a lot of people. In in if you have that gumption, just to to do it, and it's it, it's just to make a life change just to hit a low point and just say you know what i'm going to i'm going to take control of life and i'm going to i'm going to live life and not let life live but it's not easy and and, and yours wasn't easy but you know what's what's interesting is the fact that we get a lot of people as guests and and everybody in the music business and the entertainment business has an interesting story about how they got into the business and most of the time it's through perseverance it's yes. not through talent it's it's through having the same type of perseverance but usually you don't hear it in the other side no you don't hear someone outside of the entertainment business that actually does the same thing or did the same thing so that's why it's so cool to hear your story and what comes through with that story mike is is the tremendous amount of passion that you have for what you do and for 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 science and for numbers and 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 that's what amazing but 
Well, all this is going on, and that's that's amazing stuff. You also look down at your Facebook, and you're like, oh, yeah, and I'm also a producer. And you still have your music, and you're still doing your music, and you're still composing, and you, you compose yeah. for films in Bollywood and do some other things. Tell us a little bit about your music career that you've kind of kept yeah. going along the way. So after I started making music in my basement in Colorado, um, people around me said, it sounds like film music. Uh, so I thought, started reaching out to filmmakers and making contacts in Hollywood and in uh, other places, you know, London. And Hollywood ignored me. You know, they, they just saw right through a guy in his basement in Colorado, get out. But Bollywood is like, guy from America making American songs. So uh, I ended up doing a couple of songs uh, for, for two Bollywood movies, and I did... Uh, Ended up doing six indie films, a student film, and two episodes of a television show that went on Outdoor Channel. So a little bit more than nothing. That's pretty good. That, that, that is just – it just blows my mind. It really does because it's not like you had an easy job in the first place. But then to be able to still pursue your passion and still pursue your 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 – your music is that is just some people get to a point where they have to feel like they choose one or the other. And the fact that you still kept it going and, and do you find your music? Let me ask you this question. Now that you're basically a super brain, <laughs> how does that, does, do you find that it, it helps your music with the thought process maybe, or is there, is there a connection between your math skills and your music skills and your approach to music? There, there are a number of connections. Uh, one, acoustics. You know, ultimately, music is a fluid dynamics problem. So I, I studied uh, acoustics at the graduate level when I was at Penn State. Sorry, but I just love that last sentence you just said. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just smiling. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's all vibrations, yeah. right? It's all vibrations that come to you. So uh, understanding the properties of air and you know, how waves move helps. But understanding the software... Um, that is, um, you know, sampling, aliasing, uh, convolution reverb, um, phase shift, uh, comb filtering, um, compression. All this stuff was like, you know, I, I could understand it very, very simply because there's an analog to it in spacecraft controls. Uh, for a lot of things, spacecraft controls is just a thousand times slower than music. Wow. It's often common to have a spacecraft control system at one hertz. So a thousand oh. times faster is, wow. you know, mm -hmm. we'll have filters running at, you know, 20 hertz or 40 hertz. So the sampling frequency would be 40 hertz. But all the math is the same. And I have a master's degree in electrical engineering. And, you know, so I, I could see into that stuff, you know, MP3 processing, you know, uh, we did them as homework problems. Wow. That's so it gave me an edge, you know, mm. having a double E oh, definitely. <laughs> in the yeah. music biz. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's amazing. The fact that I'm, I'm just, I'm so blown away, you know. I mean, I, I was blown away with the Scott, <laughs> Andrew, and Rob Reverb conversation, but I'm sorry. This is way better. <laughs> well, we're yesterday's news already. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, how quickly they come on! Um, but so working with Bollywood, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff. Obviously, uh, over 
you know, the internet and sending files back right. and forth. Did you find, were they easy to work with? Was there a lot of changes? Did you have to do, what was the, um, what was the timetable like? Is it, was it a super compressed schedule or did you have time? Or? The, so both of these films uh, were, um, they had multiple tracks in a Bollywood film. Um, of course, I would love to do, you know, full feature score and do 90 minutes of music. Right. But what they were looking for was uh, tracks with uh, individual type of thing. One, the one movie called Salt and Light, uh, they wanted a heavy metal track. And I was working with uh, an instrumentalist, uh, guitarist, Sean Gill, great player, who helped compose that kind of thing. The other track was a, a dance track. So it was these were single tracks for Bollywood. But I, I had an experience when you say <laughs> the indie film world is uh, – they don't respect uh, musicians as much as they do the people that generate the on-screen, the visuals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Always. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the musicians and the sound is more of an afterthought to them. Uh, I had a great experience working on a film that was for a, a British, uh, British, I was called, uh, Never Forget the Brave. It was sort of a, like a Braveheart meets Star Trek you know, lots of death, lots of medieval death and like <laughs> yeah. sci-fi thing. Uh, and I did uh, all the score for that. And they loved it so much. I was so rewarded because that's, you know, when somebody loves your work, you mm -hmm. feel rewarded. Right. That we're going to change things. And then they sent back a new cut like twice more. And now my, my, my tracks did not fit anymore. And I found that to be a very frustrating. And maybe as an engineer, it's like you, you turn in your software and then, you know, they come back and say, no, you got to change all this stuff. And then, no, 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 you don't understand. We turned it in. It's done. Right, it's done. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you don't want to make changes. It's right? never so, done, yeah. So I realized that, you know, the hierarchy with the director and all that stuff. And <laughs> it was still a good experience. I still enjoyed the film. Wow. Does I compare that to working with NASA? Like, which, which is, like... Is there any parallel or is it just two totally different Well, things? I'd say NASA's characterized by exceptional organizational skills. Like you really know what you're doing like all the time. And if you don't, you're writing down what the plan to get to know what you're doing. Right. So um, a lot of built-in uh, checks to make sure that you're doing the right thing and lots of process um, I'll give you a funny story. So in 2015, I was approached by Red Bull to produce uh, an artistic project for a creative conference that they had called Glimpses. Um, and they were giving grants, and I proposed a couple of projects, and they selected one, which was a music video called When the Stars Align, where I would get or Greg Markell wrote the song, and Umi Kapila wrote the song, and we were going to get all my friends from the aerospace world to help sing it. And uh, the first day of recording, you know, because I'm the producer, I'm executive producer of a music video, I got, I got film people, I got audio people, I got engineers, I got an orchestra, I got a 10-piece orchestra that I hired, I have uh, rock musicians, I have singers, I have airspace, I mean, it's a production, right? And the first day I go in, it's like 8.30 a.m., and I hand everybody out their agendas, and I start reading off of it. And I got down to about the third bullet, and I looked up, and everybody's like, are you going to test me? <laughs> they had never seen anything like that, yeah. you know, that they were used to dealing with, you know, a certain amount of uh, 
Lack, lack fluid, of yes. looser yeah. structure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So for the rest of the day, I just kind of let things happen. But my nature is to, you know, at 830, we're going to do this. At 831, we're going to do that. You know, <laughs> timeline. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, how does that work, though? I mean, creatively, it's very difficult to do that because if you haven't accomplished what you need to accomplish in the manner that you need to accomplish it, you have to keep on going until you get it for the most part. And I would imagine it would be the same thing with what you're doing with NASA because how can you say, you know, at 9.35, we're going to go on to this when you're still not finished. You know what I mean? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a contrast. Uh, there's a lot of disorganization within NASA, but there's uh, that's when you're trying to get figure things out. You're disorganized in the beginning, but by the time you hit the launch pad, everything's been tested. Oh. Everything's been yeah. reviewed. Everybody's in place. All the procedures are finalized. There's no hairs sticking up. But when you're going through the process of figuring something out, like I know creatively I have times of day that are much more efficient than others and yeah. other times I'm crashing and other times something's going on that I eventually get to the finish line, but getting there is not always linear. Sometimes it's very chaotic. But um, I would imagine in doing some deep thinking in math and trying to solve problems that aren't easy, um, there's got to be points where like I've known I've been trying to design something. It's not working. I spend several days. It's just not working. I sleep. I wake up. I get a ding moment and I go, hey, wait a minute. I got to try this. Then you come in and you solved it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not something that's easy, easily schedulable other than saying between this point and this point, I'm going to accomplish this task. Within that, it's total chaos. How does that work with you? Uh, it's probably the same. Uh, when you're an engineer analyst, uh, which I was for many years, which is a really enjoyable job. It's probably a lot like your job. You sit down software and you're trying to work some particular part of the problem and the world fades away while you're solving this problem all day. But yeah, days where just stumbling through fog, uh, can't get the code to compile, can't find the bug, intense frustration, you know, even anger at yourself and then um, driving to work or you know the proverbial in the shower mm-hmm. uh, it didn't happen to me in the shower it was always driving to work for me that I would come up with some idea that by the time I got to work I knew what I wanted to try and it's you know trying so many different keys and I solved a lot of problems that way you know sometimes I've had eureka moments that way you know you just mentioned software is most of what you do based around software? Uh, I think no, no. I think the software is based around what I do. Ooh. Ah. I'm a systems engineer, and uh, I'm the I'm the person that helps create the symphony and say, "Well, this is what we need the teams to do." Um, I will never be a slave to the software, but I rely on it. I, I, maybe your question is like, how much software, where, where do we actually have in our jobs? Mm-hmm. Um, most engineers are multi-wired to multiple devices 
24 seven. It's a lot of software. Um, Every different group, like the thermal groups will have their thermal codes and they'll know about, you know, heat radiation, heat absorption, heat transmission, and the power engineers will have their power software codes, which will simulate the charging of the batteries and the solar rays and the degradation over, you know, so many years in space. And that, you know, the guidance navigation and controls engineers will have, you know, simulation codes that have the star trackers and the inertial measurement units and, you know, the atmosphere of the earth dragging on the spacecraft and how that changes the trajectory and all that stuff is modeled in these codes. And we can't constantly bringing these codes, these results of the codes up and, and comparing them and talking about them around tables just like this. Mike, all I can say is I'm going to replay this because there's some amazing quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so – seriously, you, you make science so awesome and so – So musical. And so, yeah, 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 but the, this parallel is just I'm, – I'm over here listening and – you're just blowing my mind on a lot of different levels. Well, I think and- it's great because like, as a layman, you think one guy figures it all out. But what's interesting is everybody's got their specialty and their and their expertise within that focus that they're that they're looking at. And Not it's like a movie, though. It, yeah. No, absolutely. Where you have all yeah. these different crafts, all these experts that come together, and somebody's got to bring it together. And that's that's me. That's yeah, yeah. Just systems. Really, like you said, the conductor. Yeah. Or the director, yeah. I um I got to ask you a question, and and because is it about aliens? Uh, no, but it's <laughs> and it's a science question, and it's totally non musical. But I can't not have you. I can't not ask you this question. Okay. Um, being uh, especially your background, um, one of the things that's always blown me away is the fact that in space, like when you're most navigation down here on Earth is is you know there's landmarks and things like that, and in space, like. Is it? Are you literally anchoring the guidance on the stars that are around, and to be able to figure out how that's going to change as these crafts go farther and farther out, um, to keep such pinpoint accuracy to get them to the specific orbit of whatever? Like, I'm kind of a nerd, and that guidance thing has always been something that's totally fascinated me. It's 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 because it's like there are no landmarks. There's and you're well. There's you're a couple of techniques. And, and um, the most common, the oldest one is the uh, Doppler ranging technique, which is the spacecraft has a, a carrier frequency that it's transmitting to Earth. It's a fixed frequency, but spacecraft is receding from the Earth. It's going away from the Earth. That Those waves are stretched a little bit. Right? Speed of light is constant, but the waves stretch a little bit. Uh, so uh, you can measure that, and now you know how fast the vehicle is going. And when you get multiple measurements of its speed, then you fit that to a Keplerian orbit, which comes right out of Newton's laws. This is 300-year-old stuff. And you get down to a couple of meters. You know, we're really, really good at that. It's not that simple. I mean, there's the deep space network is involved to take all these signals and a lot of processing on the ground to tease out the trajectory. Uh, but it's a very, very good technique. Now, the other technique is the landmark technique, uh, which was used on the deep impact mission. That I was a, a member of the, the flight team on that. Uh, deep impact in 2005 had, uh, struck a comet right. and took images of, a, of the 
ejecta coming off the comet. Uh, the technique there was, uh, was optical navigation, where you're using the bright planets and the stars and the comet and the positions in the image give you kind of a, the same uh, landmark that you would get, say, when you're in the desert and you see three mountains. That as you drive between those mountains, you can get you can pinpoint your position on a map. It's a similar technique. It's all done in an algorithm now. That's optical navigation. I just right? find that fascinating because it's like you have to project. Like we've all been through a mountain, so we kind of know what that looks like. But when you're out, like when the spacecraft's out at Pluto, and and it's a whole different perspective of just the universe in and of itself. And it also brings up the point of if we ever figure out how to fly through uh, black holes, what's going to happen on the other side for navigation? Yeah, it's not happening. <laughs> so, here's a question. So obviously, this as as your spacecraft uh, gets further away, obviously the delay to be able to communicate to it is longer. What kinds of development in AI is being created that the spacecraft now is able to start making some of its own decisions because it needs to be more timely than, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the computer revolution in the past 30 years, we've all seen how we've gone from, you know, very basic to extremely complex and small boxes. That has enabled us in the aerospace world uh, to put more smarts into the systems. And it's distributed smarts. Whereas, say, 25, 30 years ago, you'd have a flight computer, maybe two of them, uh, in case one fails. And then you'd have all of your boxes, um, your gyro package, your battery, you know, all your various things. When you look at a spacecraft, you see these boxes bolted on. They're all the electronic equipment. They'd be analog boxes. And now they are all digital and they all have their own fault protection in them. There are, there's distributed smarts. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's advancements uh, in, you know, layered um, fault protection and goal nets and these, you know, high, I'm not in that, type of research, but there are people that are uh, actively working every day to install more smarts in the spacecraft so we can get them farther and do more without being in contact with them. Now, now one thing I'm noticing, I've been following uh, the Watson and what it's doing with medicine because it reads all the papers. And the big concept in medicine is that no individual doctor can read every single paper that, that comes out. So Watson's being used as, as kind of a secondary... Um, opinion to say, oh, by the way, you think you're doing this, but Watson noticed six other papers came out that might contradict that most recently in the, you know. So I'm wondering whether it, whether you got material mechanics and everything else, and there's so much knowledge by so many people that are contributing. Are you starting to use computers like Watson or other types of computers that are ingesting all the learned information of physics, chemistry, and in, and in using that as way. an aid to go, you know, you want to use an alloy or this material or, you know. Yeah, the analogy is not, not quite perfect because sure. a human body is, we're trying to learn about it by all these various case studies. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's necessary that we put a database. There's no laws of physics that we can look to to tell us how the human body is going to work. I guess there's, you know. 
But if you've got researchers in Europe and researchers in different countries that are all not connected. Yeah, it's different. Um, I'd say in aerospace, we have, uh, you know, if you have a mechanical problem, uh, you have a young, maybe junior mechanical engineer discovers the problem. There's a set of leadership, um, senior mechanical engineers that will come around to help and bring it to a review. If it's a major problem, there'll be a review board and they will bring in experts from far and wide until they solve that sufficiently. Mm. And there's a great deal of objectivity. Uh, so it's not like we go to a, an, an Oracle database, the magic touchstone, tell us what we missed, <laughs> oh, wise one. Well, it's, also, it's also not like there'd be some someone working on some other part of the world who's actually been to Alpha Centauri and wrote his own paper <laughs> about it. Like the scientific communi community, I think, as a whole would probably know more. Yeah about what the community is doing. No, we don't it? know Alpha Centauri, but we know I just we could probably take within within a minute or two, if I had my Google, I'd be able to tell you what the temperature is at the center of Alpha Centauri mm -hmm. with high accuracy. Wow. Um, and what's what's it made out of, you know? Because we can know that mm -hmm. from far away uh, through spectroscopy. Mm -hmm. After the podcast, I'm totally going to take you up with that offer. <laughs> Let me, um, Planning a vacation on Alpha no, Centauri? <laughs> no, this is just – this is so fascinating. But I I, I want to – because we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you a, a question. Um, you know, with all the space startups that are up there, I'm, I'm a big NASA fan. I've always been like – if there was a passion of besides music, it's, it's space. I mean, I – I was raised going to the observatory, and I love going out. I got to the you, desert. bro. <laughs> All right, so I'm geeking out on this stuff. How how's the atmosphere at at NASA with all these startups? How do they view a lot of the startups that are that are sending with private invested, um, you know, missions that they're bringing payloads up to the space station and things like that? Are they do, do they see them as as a partnership, or is it is it you know kind of like just you know, reinvigorating the NASA to like, okay, that's great. You know? Or if the government doesn't fund you to go work for them. Well, that's, I think, comes up in the hallways is that there's a, there's a new resurgence. You know, there's Blue Origin, there's SpaceX, yeah. there's um, Virgin, and it's exciting. You know, it's, a, it's more launch vehicles. It's more capability. Uh, they're filling a piece of the market that NASA really doesn't, uh, I mean, choose my words. I don't. I don't speak no, for NASA. You don't speak. I understand but, that. But uh, it appears to me that you know NASA's not really going after uh, that market where you're going to like peg. It's not Pegasus. It's a orbital sciences has a competitor to SpaceX where they fly an airplane and launch a rocket from an airplane. Mm, yeah. And. NASA's not going to have a JPL project to do that or a Johnson Space Center project or, you know, that's just yeah. not something they're going to do. So we may say, and I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't say we, but later on that will become an asset uh, for maybe um, a mission to Mars yeah. that you can use an orbital mm -hmm. sciences launch vehicle, a SpaceX launch vehicle. So. I think from the inside NASA perspective, it would be this is all good. This is people wanting to fly in space, and we're, we're kind of for that. Because I, I tend to – the way I categorize it just in my own brain is I see NASA as doing the science, 
you know, and in some ways, some of these startups kind of doing the the blue collar space stuff, getting stuff up into the space and doing the doing the jobs. Whereas I see NASA doing doing the research and and, and stretching you know, out reusability is what SpaceX is built around. Reusability is enabling. It's important. It's valuable. It's not sexy. Um, yeah, I don't want to really spend my time right now in my career working on trying to make something more efficient as a process. Uh, to some people, it's really exciting. Right. You know, they, they integrate the vehicle in one angle and then they turn it another way and they save, you know, four days in integration time and, whoa, you know, they love it. But for me, you know, I want to find life around other stars. I want to find liquid water. That's Remnants on Mars, you know. That's cool. rhymed. <laughs> you know, you know the equivalent of that would be in musical terms that I can think of, and this might be a, a poor example, but filtering your reverb. <laughs> no, no, it'd be the equivalent of if Scott went to start working on a sound effects library as yeah. opposed to designing yeah. brand new sound effects. And but you I, know, I, 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 I've become a YouTube junkie with music, <laughs> and I was hearing a bunch of pretty famous guitar players that are like session players and they were talking about we can do one of two things we get paid to play other people's music we read it it's not our own but these are the notes we're 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 paid to play and we go on tour and we play those notes and we perform that performance or you get the opportunity to come up with something original something that you've created not playing other people's stuff but playing something that you've actually created yeah. and the difference is of opportunity and you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I can tell you my sense of like trying to relate NASA to the record biz. I'm going to try to do this because I actually have a ton of friends who work for NASA, and we've had some on yeah, the podcast right. like years ago. But the way I think about it, because uh, from the from the NASA side, I've heard about how tight the budgets are. You know, sometimes and they don't have the money to play with like they used to have before and obviously they're at the whim the whim of some political decisions you know that they don't have any say over but nasa's still trying to do the huge things and the things that you're so excited about you know finding life and those things but it's like the big labels in the music biz who are still trying to do the big artists each year they don't have the budgets to do a lot of the little development they used to do but they focus on the big the big artists and the big development but it opens up a landscape for a lot of indies to do really cool stuff like the SpaceX's and, and those kinds of companies. So it's it's almost like the same kind of ecosystem where you have the big behemoth uh, who's doing the big stuff but doesn't have the money to play with that they used to, but they still have enough to do the big stuff. And it opens up a landscape for a lot of startups to do really cool stuff. I like that. Yeah. No, that's perfect. And you know what? We're going to have to start wrapping this up. But I, I – two things And before we go. First thing is, is I love – like movies where you, they have the scene like in Apollo 13 or any of those, even Armageddon where you see all the the uh, mission control and you see everybody at their console and everybody has their headset on. Um, no kidding. When I was touring and with Stevie Wonder, one of the, my best, like I absolutely loved when they called house lights and 
all the lights dim and all the texts, we all have our headset on and we're all checking in with each other and we're all about ready to launch the show. And it had that, it, I just love that anticipation, which is, you know, a tenth of probably the euphoria that happens when you're actually on a launch pad. But when you're ever like that little moment of anticipation before, before it goes and everybody's looking at each other and everybody's like ready to roll, that to me just reminds me of something like you would feel like at a, at a control, mission control when they're about to launch. But the other thing I wanted to, wanted to ask you is now that we've heard your story and it's fascinating and I can't wait to visit with you more. And by the way, I sent you a friend request while we were <laughs> podcasting. Fanboy. <laughs> yeah, I am total. But um, I, I just want to know, um, after your whole story, um, do you feel like you've mission accomplished in, in your personal life, just working with NASA and wanting to help? Have you? Do you feel this sense of like... I've done it. I've, I've helped them. In 2014, uh, the Orion spacecraft was launched from Kennedy Space Center in December, de December 5th. And the night before, I was awarded the Space Flight Awareness Award by NASA astronaut Anna Fisher. And I uh, made a connection with her. Um, I started the journey after Challenger. And after she had given me that award, we exchanged emails, and it uh, turns out she was friends with five of the crew members oh. of Challenger. Hmm. She went to astronaut school with them. And uh, I kind of felt like I had hit the circle, like I had made it to the end of the circle right. when that happened. Like, uh, I, I can die now. I don't want to. <laughs> but that was a moment. Mike, all, all I can do, I, I just got to give you a round of applause. Yeah. That is so, that, that is you. so inspirational. That is just, that's what an amazing story. And I, I cannot add anything more to that. That's just, we, we took it full circle. And believe me, on this podcast, that doesn't happen <laughs> that often. Well, you know, I just want to encourage people to just take every lesson that you've heard and everything that you heard in this podcast. It's really, it's inspirational. And once again, thank you so much, Mike, for coming and, and joining us and telling us your story. And um, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. And uh, before we go... Um, I just want to see what people are working on, and I guarantee you it's not anything as cool as what we heard about. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we'll start with you, Rob. What cool things have you been working on? I'm launching a mission to the moons of Saturn. <laughs> you too, huh? Oh, yeah. Everybody's doing it. You're not doing it? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. It's a hot thing. What am I doing? I've actually been doing some surround music mixing uh, at my place just because I hadn't done it for a while, and it's been really fun to be back into it. Uh, trying to think, uh, still working on that piano project I talked about yeah. a while ago and traveling like a crazy person. And by the way, I just want to, I'm just going to interject here. Uh, John Nip over there on the other microphone and myself went to dinner with uh, Rob and actually wound up at his studio. And let me just tell you, Rob played us the surround track of something that was mixed there, and it was probably the most amazing piece of surround music I've ever heard. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Well, thank you, guys. So if you guys haven't heard it, I recommend you go over there. So everybody come to Rob's place. <laughs> John, how about you, man? I mean, you were sitting there, and, and you know what? It was fun having you across because all I saw was you smiling My the whole time. My mind is just completely blown, <laughs> literally. But um, – no, I'm working on a six-part six film series out of Brooklyn right now. 
um, that should be released in in the coming months, and two shorts and one feature. So that's what I'm doing. That's a lot. Yeah. How's your uh, How's the California visit going? Going pretty well. I head to San Francisco tomorrow for some work for the week, and then I'm back in LA for another week, and then hopefully back in New York after that. So oh, I like being out here though. We being like with you, you guys here. and. We haven't hung out at all, hardly at all, though. We'll, we'll so, hang out? Yeah, I know. We need to. Scott, how about you? How I know there's stuff you can't <laughs> talk about, which is probably most of it. But uh, I know. Um, until it comes out. Goodness, what am I? Well, I think I'm... This is the last week on the strain. It's been 25 weeks, and that's been kind of fun. It's appropriately named, isn't it? I know. <laughs> yeah. no, it's been great. It's been wonderful people. Um <laughs> That was good, Rob. Thank you. <laughs> you pulled that one out. Um, I've been doing a ton of VR projects, and uh, that I could talk about eventually. But um, it's good. I've been, you know, I've it's been almost nonstop since January. Five, Work. six, seven days a week. Work is so, good. Yeah, it's, it's good. But uh, I think I'm ready for, you know, I've got a couple more projects before I can see some more daylight. And then... Uh, then I think I'll probably find an island to disappear on, you know? <laughs> well, it's always good when, you, when you're when you available. Hey, to it's good. To knock on wood. It's good to be working, you know? <laughs> Bobby, how about yourself? I know you have your, uh, well, I'll let you. Well, uh, a couple days ago, I released a second edition of social media, social media promotion for musicians. And uh, that's kind of cool. So I'm just kind of writing the marketing on that right now. And in another couple of weeks, starting pre-production on an album that I'm producing. So, hmm. yeah. Let's talk about your uh, site with your mixing tips. and. Oh, oh, well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, I've kind of changed from offering courses. I still do. But now it's more on a subscription basis, something I'm calling the Hitmakers Club. And you can get access to not only all of my courses – but exclusive webinars that happen three times a month. As a matter of fact, the, the first webinar is a workshop, and it's a new mixing technique. The second one that happens in the month is a deconstructed hits, where we take a hit and we figure out why it sounds the way it sounds. Right. And then the third one is a Q&A, just strictly Q&A. So that's part of Hitmakers Club. And what's the what's the price point on that? What is that? There's three of them actually. It goes from 19.95 a month to 49.95 a month. Nice. Depending how much of that you want. So. And like I said, seriously when I was talking about the magazines and the publications, that's, you know, you want to invest in your future. And by the way, I have no stake in Bobby's <laughs> organization, but I was actually thinking about that when I was this this whole epiphany came to me. And so um, if you want to start and you want to know more and learn more um, and you want to go to the same place where scientists go, <laughs> Bobby Osinski is, uh, is a great place. What's the URL that they could go to? Hitmakersclub.com or you can go to bobbyosinski.com and that will take you all sorts of different places. Well, that's great. So, Mike, can people send you questions on Facebook or? Yeah, you know, sure. I, we have I, seven I, listeners, so it's not like you're going to be flooded with. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I give uh, public talks. Uh, people invite me. I'm, usually, it's a university. The last one I did was at Chapman University. Um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I mentor many people. There's a lot of people that are in their 20s or 
30s, you know, they're, they're struggling, not knowing, they always loved NASA, not really knowing how to get into it. Um, I advise a lot of people, you know, just to take math and science as a form of self-improvement. So, yeah, get on, uh, call me on Mike Paul Hughes on Facebook. That's great. How about you, Mike? Um, currently, I'm uh, going to be mixing a, uh, a pilot for a TV show next week. Uh, on Saturn? Uh, no, I wish. <laughs> oh, what a letdown, Mike. Come on. <laughs> and then I have a Netflix series that I'm doing in the fall. And then just basically finishing up all the stuff that we shot in the spring and, and working on that. And that's coming good. And have one more trip where we're going to be shooting some more stuff. But I'll tell you about that when it gets closer. And uh, just, you know, just hanging out there and enjoying life and trying to figure it out. I will say that I've seen some shows and I'm waiting for Dennis to come back because I know he's out and about working and I always send him an email, but um, Dennis Moody. And because um, I've seen shows at the Bowl, at the Greek. I've seen shows over at the Palladium. I've seen shows at Walt Disney Concert Hall. I'm kind of doing a lot of shows because of this music project that I'm working on. Um, but man, the quality of the mixes at the different bands and the different venues and how you experience them, it's truly remarkable. Like there's just, there's something to be said for being up close and intimate with an artist like you get at the Palladium. But then there's something to be said about an event like you would at the Hollywood Bowl. And then there's something to be said about the hybrid, which would be like the Greek, the equivalent of the Greek. So it's a whole live thing that we're going to be talking about somewhere down the road when Dennis can come back. But that's pretty much it. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and uh, appreciate everything you said and the inspiration. And I also have to give a huge shout out to Joanne over at uh, Dave Smith's Instruments. All right, Joanne. I, uh, All right, Joanne. I've been emailing her, and she actually sent me a picture of her NAM badge that she had, and it said, I heart audio nowcast. <laughs> <laughs> Joanne is the best. She's our number one fan. And Andrew, too. But Joanne yeah. is the best. <laughs> all right. For myself and all the guys, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. See you, See Joanne. Thanks for listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.